Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good, good. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to be with all of you this morning as we continue our series called Tearing Down Strongholds. We are in our fourth week of this series. We've looked at tearing down the stronghold of complacency, of addiction, of uh, self-reliance last week, and we're about to jump into another one today. But before we jump into this stronghold, before we jump into our passage today, I just want to start by asking everyone a question. Uh, I want you to reflect on this question, and the question is this. Um, How do I respond uh, when things don't go the way I wanted them to? How do I respond when things don't go the way I planned them to? For instance, you work really hard all year long at your job, and you're putting everything in because you want that raise, you want that promotion, but then at the end of the year, you don't get that raise, you don't get that promotion. And to make matters worse, the coworker who worked half as hard as you, in your humble opinion, Uh, got the raise, got the promotion. Or for instance, say your kid's going through a difficult time at school and they're falling behind or or maybe they're just having trouble focusing and then you're getting anxious about it and, and, and what do you do in that moment? How do you respond when things don't go the way you wanted them to? Do you give vent to your frustration and let that teacher have a piece of your mind? What do you, what do you do? How do you respond when things don't go as you planned, or maybe you've worked so hard your whole life and you're, you've saved for retirement and you're on the cusp of entering into this golden, the golden days of your life and, and then you find out you have thousands of dollars of repairs on your home or someone, you or your spouse has a bunch of medical bills coming up because they're diagnosed with some sort of illness or, or maybe even worse, like one of you doesn't wanna spend the rest of their lives with the other. How do you respond? How do you respond when life doesn't go according to, to your plan? How do you respond when you get a flat tire or you have unexpected medical or, or, or car bills? How do you respond when you encounter a worldwide pandemic and you're forced to quarantine for weeks and it totally upends the way we know how to do life? How do you respond when we have to wear a mask until God knows when? Maybe worst of all, how do you respond when Michigan loses to Ohio State for the 20th straight year? How do you respond? Some of you, it's like jubilee, right? (laughs) But for many of you, it's despair. Maybe none of the circumstances I just mentioned now resonate with you personally, but I know that each and every one of you sitting here this morning have different instances, occasions, things in your life that didn't end up going the way you wanted them to. And sometimes those things are just mere inconveniences and and it makes life a little bit more difficult and you just wish that things would go back to the way they were. But sometimes these things are really heavy. They're hardships and they bring about great anxiety and and worry and, and they're difficult. I know we all have these. And you see the way, listen, the way we respond to these different situations whether they're big or small, it's really important. And listen, it's not so super important because the, 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 the way of your life is going to be determined uh, by how your heart responds to that one flat tire. But listen, day after day, moment by moment, decision by decision, the direction of our lives or, and the joy or the lack of joy that we experience in Jesus is the direct result of how our hearts respond to these situations. And so I want to ask all of you again, reflecting on your own hearts, how do I respond when things don't go the way I wanted them to? Have you cultivated 
such a trust and a confidence and faith in the Lord that when you encounter these sorts of difficulties, you're able to count them all joy, these trials of various kinds? Or is your heart so unanchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ that as your life is tossed to and fro in the seas of of difficulty and this world, that you complain? That's your response when you encounter difficulties, big or small. You complain, and you complain to your friends, and you complain to your family members, and you complain on Facebook, and, 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 the, and the repeat thing in your mind over and over again is this cycle of complaining. You complain, being honest with yourself right now. Would you say that your response in life is characterized by a spirit of complaining? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's the stronghold we're going to address today is this stronghold of complaining. And we're going to look at how it can take root in our hearts, what we can do to tear it down. And our definition of complaining is as follows. Complaining is the expression of dissatisfaction or resentment about something or someone. That's what complaining is. Complaining is the expression of dissatisfaction or resentment about something or someone. One. Now, again, this might not seem like the worst stronghold in the world, but listen, as we choose, and that's an important word for us to take into account right now, that we, we have a choice in this matter. We can choose our attitude and our responses to the difficulties we encounter as we choose to complain again and again and again. What was once a simple decision, a simple complaint about a car repair or a frustrating coworker or a policy decision we disagreed with in Washington, what was just once a simple complaint, these simple decisions began to form our character. These simple decisions that we make every single day begin to form the very nature of our hearts. And this spirit of complaining, this spirit of grumbling takes root in our hearts and forms a stronghold. So our lives are characterized by this. Just to remind all of us, a definition of a stronghold is this. It is a place that has been fortified in order to protect it against an attack. That's what a stronghold is. A stronghold is a place that has been fortified in order to protect itself against an attack. And since that is what we are dealing with week after week after week, we need to be, we need to come into this room, each and every one of us, and be honest with ourselves and with God. We need to be ready to humble ourselves in this very moment, to to allow God's spirit to move and to work. Because listen, we cannot tear these strongholds down by ourselves. We need the help of God's spirit. Amen? We need the help of God's spirit and we need his wisdom from his word. And so before we go any further, let's just commit this time uh, as we address this stronghold uh, to, to prayer. Would you pray with me? Father God, we just, uh, just want to commit this time to you and we want to humble ourselves and we want to hear what you would say for each and every one of us individually and collectively as a church so that we would be able to tear down this stronghold of complaining and that we would be able to move forward to greater faithfulness to you, greater obedience to you, and experience the life that you would have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get those out now. We are going to be in the book of Numbers. You can open your Bibles up to the book of Numbers. That is the fourth book of the Bible, right? In the very beginning, Numbers chapter 11 is where we're going to be. And before we jump into the passage, uh, here's our big idea this morning. Our big idea is this. 
uh, to win my war against complaining. Everyone say my war. To win my war against complaining, I must battle my unbelief. Say my unbelief. This is our battle. My war against complaining. To win my war against complaining, I must battle my unbelief. Because at the root of all sinful complaining is a heart of unbelief. It's this heart that does not have faith that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he'll do. That's what's at the root of all complaining is this heart of unbelief. An inability to believe that God is really good. An inability to believe that God is in control. An inability to believe the timeless promises of Scripture, like, like, like the reality that he will work all things together for the good of those that love him. And maybe not always the way I wanted it. Maybe not in the timing that I wanted. Maybe not how I wanted it. But trusting that God is good. A, a heart that is unable to do that is a heart that is going to be given over to the spirit of complaining. And that's what we see in Numbers 11 in the story we're about to read. And so just some context about our story here in Numbers 11. We are um, meeting with the Israelites in the middle of the wilderness. But before they got here, remember all the way back in the book of Exodus, uh, the Israelites were liberated from, from enslavement, from captivity, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And life was not good there. Life was very hard there. And God liberated them from that. He freed them from that. He led them through the Red Sea into the Sinai Peninsula. And he met with the Israelites in power there. And he met with them at Mount Sinai. And, and he made a covenant with them. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Even when you rebel, even when you're faithless, I will remain faithful. And they rebelled, but God created a system and a way for them to live in right relationship with them. He gave them the, the priests and a sacrificial system and the tabernacle. And so they journeyed through the wilderness and they would set up this tabernacle in the middle of the camp. And that's where God's presence was. And so, so we encounter the Israelites here in the book of Numbers, and they've been camping around Mount Sinai for about a year now, okay? They sort of settled here. They took a bit of a break from journeying from Egypt to Mount Sinai. They've been hanging out for about a, a year. In the beginning of the book of Numbers, they do a bit of a census to see how many people are in the, in the tribes and in the camp, hence why the name of the book is Numbers, and then they talk about preparations and journeying out, and then they eventually set out on their journey. And that's kind of where we pick up in Numbers 11, very near the beginning of their journey. So look there now, chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And so the journey had just began in like the middle of chapter 10, verse 11, and they had just started, and what do they do right off the bat? What do they do right off the bat? They complain. They complain. Parents, you take your kids on a long road trip, you know what this is like? Are we, are we there yet? Are we there? They start right off the bat and they complain. But why do they complain? Why do we complain? Here's the first thing that we see in this passage. Why do we complain? Very simple. We complain when we experience difficulty. We experience difficulty. Life, life is hard. 
Life doesn't go the way we planned it to. Life is difficult. Life is frustrating. Look again at verse 1. The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their what? Their misfortunes, their difficulties, their hardships. They're complaining about how hard their life is. And listen, I don't want to diminish or downplay how difficult their circumstances were because their life was not easy right now. I mean, they're walking through the desert. They're journeying through the desert. Imagine day after day after day, the hot sun beating down on your back and all you have to drink is like this warm water. There was no Gatorade back then. And they're walking, journeying day after day. They're eating the same food day after day, manna. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But just imagine, this is your life. Every single day, you wake up, hot sun beating on your back. You gotta put that tent away. You're drinking lukewarm water and eating Ritz crackers all day long. Like, are you happy? I'm not happy. I'm honest with you. I, will, I would be complaining in this circumstance. The heart response of the Israelites to this grind, to this difficulty, was to complain about their misfortunes. But here's what we can say about this. Um, their misfortunes, listen, their misfortunes make their complaining understandable but, but, it doesn't excuse it. And the same goes for us. The difficulty we're experiencing in life explains our complaining, but it, but it doesn't excuse our complaining. You get that? Like, like, your life might be really hard right now. I get it. You might be going through some difficult waters right now. And your job might be hard. Your family life might be hard. Your marriage might be really difficult. But just because you're going through a difficult circumstance doesn't give you license to complain about whatever you want. It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Listen, the difficulty we're experiencing can explain our complaining, but it does not excuse it. It does not excuse it. And look at the consequence for the Israelites complaining. It's not good. Look at the second half of verse 1. And so God hears it. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And so God brings consequences. God brings judgment on the people of Israel for their complaining. But what I think, listen, what I think is so interesting about this part of the passage here. Is, is where God brings the judgment. Where does he bring it? Look at the very end of verse one. Where does he bring it? What part of the camp? The outlying parts of the camp. And so remember at the beginning of the message, I was talking about how it was set up with the, with the tabernacle in the middle and the, 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 the tribes would camp around it. Check out this picture. This is kind of what it would look like. It wouldn't look this precise, but, but you have the tabernacle in the middle. That's where the priests would be. And then you had the you had the tribes all camped around it and their various tribes. It might have looked more like this, actually. Check out this next picture. And it, and it says in God's word that, that the people that were encamped the furthest away from the tabernacle were the ones that got roasted. Right? What, what was special about the tabernacle? What was in the tabernacle? The presence of God. And so listen, the people furthest away from the presence of God were the ones that got roasted, the ones that got burned. And listen, I have seen this play out in my life, and I've seen this play out in many others' lives. 
that like, as we pursue after God, as we pursue the presence of God, as we abide with Jesus, as we keep in step with the Spirit, as we live daily lives of repentance, turning away from what we want and turning toward what God wants, picking up our cross daily, dying to ourselves, pursuing the presence of God, even when we you know, sometimes can't hear him or feel him, but as we pursue the presence of God, what I find is so interesting is that our knee-jerk reaction to difficulty, to hardship, rarely Rarely ever is it to complain. So my question for you is this. Where's your tent? Where's your tent at? Are you set up as close to God as you possibly can be? Are you pursuing after his presence in your life right now, or are you on the outskirts of the camp? Are you far from him? Or are you close to God? I think it really determines what our response to difficulty in life will be. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4 now. Verse 4, now uh, the rabble, that's an interesting word, and we're going to come back to that. You can like circle that or underline that or highlight that. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. Why do we complain? Here's another reason. We allow our perspective on the past to get distorted. Why do we complain? We allow our perspective on our past to get distorted. What are the Israelites longing for here? What do they want? What do they want? They want what? Leeks and onions and melons, the things that all of us want, right? Now, what do they really want, though? They want to go back to Egypt. That's what they want. They want to go back to being slaves in Egypt. Listen, did they have a good life there? No, it was awful. Day after day, slaving away in the brick pits, building these sort of storage cities. In Exodus 1, it says they built Pithom and Ramses. Day after day. Lives, they would be born, lived, and, and died as, as slaves. It was awful. Pharaoh despised them. He felt threatened by them. In Exodus 1, also, it says that, that, that Pharaoh commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. This is what they wanted to go back to. And so either one of two things is going on here. Either their current circumstances are really that bad, or they've got a distorted perspective on their past. Which one do you think it is? It's the latter. They've got a distorted perspective on their past. I mean, their lives are not great right now. The wilderness is hard, but their lives used to be a lot worse. A lot worse. And listen, we can fall in this exact same trap, as we begin to compare our current struggles in our lives with some sort of rosy view of our past. And listen, I get it. As we pursue after Jesus, things can get difficult sometimes. I think pursuing after Jesus, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of peace. There's a lot of contentment. But how often do you hear like someone who gets baptized and they get baptized and they make that, that decision to be obedient to Jesus? 
And then they're like, man, my life just got a lot harder after that. You ever heard that story before? Like as we pursue Jesus, you're like, yeah, I don't want to get baptized now if that's the case, right? But, but, but what, what, what so often happens is, is Jesus uses difficulties in our lives, difficult seasons in our lives to make us more like him. And, and as we wander in that wilderness and as Jesus is refining us, we oftentimes can find ourselves wondering, is this really worth it? Is this calling, this call of discipleship on my life to follow Jesus really worth it? And we begin to compare it to the way our life used to be. When I used to do whatever I wanted to, when life seemed so much easier. You know what I'm talking about? And we, we construct this rosy view of the past and we compare our present to that past. But listen, where was that past going? Where was that leading us? It was leading us to death, to destruction, to desolation. And listen, I get that following Jesus can be tremendously difficult at times, but it, but it leads to life. And as Jesus said, it leads to life abundantly. We can't allow comparison to distort our perspective of our past. And not only that, look what else was distorting the Israelites' perspective of their past. Remember, I pointed out that one weird word in verse 4, the rabble. What does that word mean? The rabble. The rabble. Just say it. Rabble. Say it. It's a fun word to say, isn't it? What does it mean, though? The rabble. The New King James uh, Version translates this term, the mixed multitude. The message translates it as uh, the riffraff. And the Tyndale Version, which is my favorite translation uh, for this term, uh, translates it, the rascal people. I'm a Cubs fan. I'm now going to refer to White Sox fans as the rascal people from now on. You can choose to call whoever you'd like the rascal people, but... but who are these people, the rascal people, the riffraff, the rabble? What's interesting is um, most people think that these were individuals who lived in Egypt with the Israelites, but they were not faithful followers of Yahweh. And so they saw what God was doing with the plagues and God leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And they were like, hey, where are you guys going? And they're like, we're going to the land of milk and honey. And they were like, sign me up. I'm out of here. That sounds great. And so they go with them and they journey with them and they go through the Red Sea and now they're in the wilderness. They're around Mount Sinai and they're like, yo, where's the milk and honey? This is awful. And they start to get this craving and they're frustrated. And what are they, what are they craving? What are they craving? Meat. But not just any kind of meat. They're craving fish. They're not craving lamb or beef, which they rarely ate because they lived by the river in Egypt to use the water to make bricks. They were able to fish out of that water and, and get fish for free. And they want to go back to that. And, and they've convinced the Israelites now that this is better. They get a craving, but what's interesting is who does the complaining. Verse 4, look there again. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept and said, again, so the rabble started it. But listen, God's word indicts God's people for the complaining. All that to say, listen, we need to be tremendously careful about who we surround ourselves with. And what I'm not saying is that, is that we shouldn't guard ourselves against hanging out and building relationships with people who need to hear about Jesus and, and, and need to enter into a relationship with him. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is, who are the people that are closest to you? Do you ever find yourself like hanging out with certain people and you end up becoming like them the more you spend time with them? 
You know, the people that you spend the most amount of time with, how are they influencing your life and your mind and your heart? Are they helping you to gain an an eternal perspective on things? Are they increasing your love and your trust and your faith in Jesus? Or are they brewing in your heart this feeling of discontent and grumbling and complaining? Are they like the rabble, stirring you up to be frustrated and give in to those desires to complain and to grumble and to allow it to take root in your hearts? Because if that's the case, that's not good. But listen, we have a choice in the matter. We can choose to change that. So let's keep reading. Look at verse 6 now. Verse 6, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bedellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in hand mills or beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. So why do we complain? Well, here's one more reason why we complain, and then we're going to talk about a few ways that we can tear down the stronghold of complaining. But we complain because we grow discontent with our present provision. We complain because we grow discontent with our present provision. Listen, it's no surprise that their distorted view of their past uh, messed with their contentment with their present provision. Look again at their attitude in in verse 6. But now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Can you just hear the disgust in their voices? They're like, ah, I wish I had some fish and onions right now. But this manna is so gross. I hate it. so boring. And they just, they're discontent with it, with this present provision. Now listen, verses 7 and 8 help us understand what this manna was like, what they would do with it once they gathered it together. But I think most importantly, look at verse 9 again, how they gathered the manna. When the dew fell upon the camp in night, the manna fell with it. The, 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 the manna came with the dew at the night. Now, some scholars have tried to explain how this manna sort of naturally came on the ground and, and people would gather it. But listen, even if God used natural occurrences to bring this manna about, um, there still wouldn't be enough to provide for the multitude of people that were journeying from Egypt to Israel. It had to be a miraculous provision. You see, this manna was a miraculous provision. And this is not the first time we read about this manna in the Old Testament. You know, back in Exodus 16, the Israelites had just crossed through the Red Sea and they're now in the wilderness and they're running out of food and they're complaining They're complaining and grumbling. Moses, why'd you lead us out here to die? We're starving. And God hears that complaint. And he responds in in kindness and patience and generosity. In Exodus 16, 4, God says this to Moses. He says, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And listen, God did what he said he would do because God is faithful and he is loving and he's powerful and he cares for his people. He did this. He miraculously provided for them every single day. But you see, the problem was the people grew discontent with their daily miraculous provision from God. And again, how quickly do we do the same thing? We grow discontent with God's provision in our lives. 
You know, just think about the way we're wired. Like, how quickly does the excitement of the new phone or the new shoes or the new car or the new whatever wear off? And then we want the newer new thing. Or maybe even more pointed of an example is like, think about like, have you ever been in a situation where like you needed God to come through and provide some way? Like maybe you were looking for a job and then you were looking for a job and you were putting out applications and you were doing interviews, but, but nothing seemed to work. And, and then you tell your small group and you're like, hey, can you guys be praying? I really need a job. I'm, 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 my, my savings are running low and, and things are getting tight and I'm not sure how I'm gonna be able to make ends meet. And they're praying and you're praying. And then all of a sudden, guess what? God comes through, right? And then God brings you a job and you text your small group and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe how good God is. I got this job, I'm so excited. And they're like, praise the Lord, and they're putting the hand emojis and stuff, you know. So excited for you. But then a day passes, and then a week passes, and a month passes, and you know where this is going, right? You text those same friends one day, oh my goodness, I hate this job. My boss is the worst, and my coworkers smell, this is just the worst. How quick do we go that direction, right? We grow discontent with the good things that God has brought into our lives, and we complain. We complain. So why do we complain? Well, we experience difficulty. We allow our perspective on our past to get distorted. We grow discontent with our present provision, and so that's why we complain. That's the reasons why. But how do we tear that down? Because God doesn't want us to sit here. God, does, God doesn't want us, God doesn't want our church to, to live in the spirit of complaining or spirit of grumbling. How do we move forward? Well, I've got two things uh, for us. Some of you might just need one, but I think most of us are going to need both of these things. Uh, the first thing is this. I need to choose to complain God's way. I need to choose to complain God's way. And some of you might be like, I just, we just spent like the last 20 minutes talking about why complaining is bad. Like, what are you doing? It, it, complaining is bad. Complaining is bad when it's rooted in unbelief, but throughout God's word, we have a multitude of passages of individuals who love the Lord, who have faith in God, and bring their complaints to him. Complaining rooted in faith. And this kind of biblical literature, do you know what we call it? Laments. Laments. We see them throughout the book of Psalms. In fact, there are 42 in the book of Psalms. That's nearly a third of the entire book. And so I would say that if that many of the Psalms are lament Psalms, it'd be important for us to be acquainted with them and understand how we might be able to use them in our own lives to complain in a way that brings God glory. And so let's look at one of these lament Psalms real quick. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Psalm 13, or you can follow along on the screen with me. Psalm 13 is a great way a great example of complaining God's way. And guess what it starts with? It starts with a complaint. Look at verse one, Psalm 13, verse one. It says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? How long will I be in this terrible position, God? How long will I be jobless? How long will my marriage be suffering and hurting? How long, God, don't you hear me? Are you deaf? Do you hear the transparency in this complaint? The honesty, how visceral it is? Listen, God wants to hear this from you. 
He's big enough to handle it, okay? He's got it. God wants us to bring these complaints to him. Complaining God's way starts with a legitimate complaint, but listen, it doesn't stop there. This is where complaining God's way diverges from complaining according to our flesh because it moves from complaining to a petition. Look at verse three. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken because I am shaken. So while the complaint gives voice to this legitimate feeling of abandonment from God, listen, we can't stay there. We must take the active turn of faith toward petitioning to God. What do we say at the very beginning? If we want to win our war against complaining, we must battle against our unbelief. And here in this moment, we can give voice to our complaining, but God wants us then to turn in faith to God, even when we don't feel it and petition to God for him to change things. But it doesn't stop there. It moves from complaint to petition to confidence in God and praise of his name. Look at verse five. But I have trusted, Lord, in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Listen, this is a template, a model for how we can complain God's way. And when we complain God's way, we give voice to real hurt in our hearts and real suffering and hardship and anxiety and worry and pain. But it doesn't stop there because we then turn our eyes and we fix them on the creator God and we reset and reframe our expectations accordingly. Listen, one of the benefits of doing this as we go through real hardship and real difficulty is, is I think it creates a healthier heart as we give voice to these emotions that are very real and that God wants us to give voice to, to him. Because if we don't, we're just going to try to suppress them or bludgeon them with truth, and that's going to lead to a very unhealthy lifestyle. God wants us to be honest and transparent with him, but he also wants us to then turn and place our faith in him and trust that he is good, that he's in control, that he's loving. We need to complain God's way, and perhaps this is what God would call you to do this week. And maybe you need to spend some time in some of these psalms of lament and, and learn what it means to complain God's way. Psalm 6, Psalm 13, Psalm 22, Psalm 30, Psalm 31, Psalm 32. Just Google it. Google lament psalms. Maybe you need to write your own this week. I need to choose to complain God's way. Here's another way we can tear down the stronghold of complaining in our hearts. Um, some of us just need to do this. I need to choose to be grateful. I need to choose to be grateful. And we have to choose this, and listen, we have to choose it again, and again, and again, day after day, moment by moment, because this is part of the battle. Choosing to be grateful is an act of faith. It is an act of faith that wages war against our unbelief and tears down the stronghold of complaining. Psalm 107, verse 8. This is the New King James translation. I just like the way it translates this particular verse. It says this, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Oh, that we would give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. Not, not oh, that we could, 
Not like that there's some sort of deficiency in us that we can't give thanks. No, we have the capacity to give thanks. You can choose it, 100%. And that's the cry and that's the prayer of the psalmist. Oh, that I would choose to give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. And this is not just some sort of perfunctory thanks like you, like remember when you were a kid and your mom or dad like would like elbow you when someone did something nice for you and they'd be like, what do you say? What do you say? Thanks. Thank you. You know, not like that, but, but like a heartfelt, disciplined, cultivated sort of thing where, where, you are, where you are expressing gratitude to God every day and to those around you and you begin to see the life-giving nature in your own heart and in the lives of those around you and become second nature and you begin to see, oh my gosh, like that, that stronghold of complaining was a lot, a lot bigger than I thought in my own heart and in my own life. You see, this is what we're called by God to do. Like, as, as followers of Jesus Christ, this is our calling. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And then right here. Give thanks in all circumstances for or because, right? This is the reason now. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So many people ask, what's, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? What's God's, hey, guess what? Check out 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's God's will for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. So how do we grow in gratitude? How do we grow in our ability to be grateful? Well, I've got three things for you, and I saw that some of you put your notes away, and we got bonus content, so bring them back out, all right? Hopefully you learned your lesson. How do we grow in gratitude? The first thing here, start your day with gratitude. Real simple stuff here. Start your day with gratitude. Give thanks to God. You know, how, how often do we go an entire day without acknowledging the existence of our Creator? We just float through life and we go through life and we don't even acknowledge that he is like so amazing and awesome and we're so grateful for him. Start your day by expressing deep gratitude for your God. You might be like, well, I don't have much to be grateful for. My life is terrible. Well, listen, like if you're awake and you're listening to this and you're breathing oxygen, you're living in like the richest country in the history of mankind, like you got a lot to be grateful for right off the bat, right there. Like express your gratitude. God every day. Start your day right there. Here's another one. Verbalize. Verbalize gratitude during your day. Say thanks to someone. Like how often do we go an entire day without expressing gratitude for those around us? It's simple, but listen, it's not easy. And, and, and I would encourage you, go beyond just saying like thanks when someone hands you a cup of coffee or thank you. But like be courageous and be brave and, and express like real meaningful appreciation for your spouse, for your parent, for your kid, coworker, a friend, a sentence, two sentences, three sentences, just share with them like, hey, you know what? Like I'm so grateful that you're my friend and, and, and just, you just share with them your heart. It would probably be awkward at first. They'll probably be like, dude, what was that? That was really weird. <laughs> But as we practice that, it becomes second nature. Because listen, why is it awkward for us? Because we're more prone to what? Complaining, and being cynical and looking at the negative side of things. 
one more thing, and I found this really valuable over this past year. End your day by recording gratitude. Journal what you're thankful for. Journal what you're thankful for. Over quarantine, um, I started doing this uh, because I needed something to ground myself in the midst of absolute chaos. And, and I actually did this at the beginning of the day, but I would write out what I wanted to accomplish in the day. And I'd write out kind of what was going on in my life and in the world. But then I'd also spend some time being grateful every single day, pausing, pulling back from life, disconnecting from the noise and, and writing out some things I was grateful for. And I'll tell you what, like when you do that day after day, it really actually becomes a challenge. Cause it's like, you know, like some days you're like, am I really grateful for my kids today? Like, uh, don't know if I, you know what I mean? Like, but as we stop and as we reflect, it really forces us to, to, to analyze our hearts and where our hearts are, you know, because every single day, listen, it's, it's gonna be a battle for us, a battle whether to choose to grumble and to complain and to allow that to take deeper and deeper root in our hearts and, and become a stronghold or to choose by faith day after day that the God that we worship is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he'll do and to be grateful for that and allow that spirit to cultivate our hearts. Let's pray. God, we um, are thankful for, for who you are, uh, that you are, a, uh, you are a God who is powerful. You are a God who is in control, but you're also a God who loves us deeply, individually. That if there's one thing that is true about us as your children, it is that we are beloved. Man, are we grateful for that comforting reality. Lord, I pray right now for our hearts. I think this past year has been really difficult and it's easy to have fallen into a spirit of complaining or a spirit of grumbling and have that be the, 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 the pattern of our lives and the typical response that we give to difficulties, to hardships. Our perspective gets distorted about how things used to be or some of us have just grown discontent with, with what you've given us, the good gifts you've given us today. And so Lord, I pray that you would, you would begin to do a work even today in our hearts and in our minds, and that your spirit would move in power even now and compel us toward steps of obedience this week to express our gratitude to you, to, to express our gratitude toward others, to remind ourselves daily of, of the ways you're working in our lives and to be grateful for that. And Lord, I know that there are others in this room today that are just experiencing difficulty and hardship and it's painful. And they've wondered why God, why me, why now, why this situation? I pray, God, in your kindness, would you help them to complain your way? Would they be able to give voice to their pain through lament and come out on the other side trusting that you hear them, that you care about them, that you will walk them through this season to the other side, to that promised land, God. We pray this in Jesus' name.